Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast with your host, Andrew Keel. This is the podcast where you can get the education you need to invest 100% passively in the highly profitable niche of mobile home parks. Welcome to the Passive Mobile Home Park Investing Podcast. This is your host, Andrew Keel. And today we have an amazing guest in Mr. Dennis Shapiro of SIH Capital Group. But before we dive in, I wanted to ask you a real quick favor. Would you mind please taking an extra 30 seconds and heading over to iTunes to rate this podcast with five stars? This helps us get more listeners, and it means the absolute world to me. So thanks for making my day with that five-star review of the show. All right, let's dive in. Dennis began investing in real estate in 2012 when the market was just beginning to recover from the global financial crisis. He built a cash-flowing portfolio, including many alternative assets such as notes, ATM funds, mobile home parks, life insurance policies, tech startups, and industrial properties. Uh, He co-founded an investment club for accredited investors in 2019, and following the success of his investor club, he launched SIH Capital Group. Uh, SIH provides accredited investors with a simplified strategy to invest for passive income. Dennis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Would you mind starting out by telling us a little about your story and how you ended up getting into manufactured housing investing? Sure. So uh, my story starts off, I was in high school. My oldest brother gave me a copy of Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Uh, I remember absolutely hating the book uh, (laughs) because I was 14. (laughs) And I, but I did get out of it. I need to start buying assets. So I think that year, I asked my older brother, who I leaned on for financial advice throughout the throughout my life, and I said, hey, what are you doing? He's like, well, mutual funds are the greatest things ever. That's what you should do. Uh, bought it, hated the experience, uh, and that's going to be like a noticeable theme in my financial career, is the first of everything that I've done has always failed <laughs> miraculously, like really greatly. So I bought the mutual fund. I wasn't happy. I think I made like $7 for the whole year. And oh. that was, and that was, um, that was the time we actually had to pay for trades, which was, mm-hmm. I remember I had like a Scotch trade account. So it was literally my trade was $7. <laughs> um, so I went down the rabbit hole saying, you know what? I like the idea of buying stocks, but can I do it better than these mutual funds? And I started going down the whole Warren Buffett and Peter Lynch and that was where I thought my career was going. It was going towards being, you know, some kind of like stock uh, manager. And I went to a business school in New York City and then boom, sh- straight into uh, the global financial crisis. From there, I went and I couldn't get a job. There were places I was interviewing for. And then the financial industry usually have a series of interviews before you sure. get the job. So during the process of that series, I would be interviewing and then they were like, oh, we're no longer hiring. Or, oh, that division is closing because of the crisis. And I was approaching my senior year, said, okay, I think I might have to pivot here a little bit. I uh, went for my MBA got recruited for the, uh, by the government while I was in my MBA program. And the first paycheck I got, I was like, oh, wow, they're not only my employer, they're also my business partner because of the amount of taxes they're taking out. <laughs> uh, went home like that day and Googled, like, how do I pay less taxes? Got a whole bunch of, you know, semi-illegal results, went back and said, how do I pay taxes, less taxes legally? 
Uh, then like one through 10 were all real estate. And I then did the stupidest thing I could possibly imagine. I went to my oldest brother and said, hey, you have a bunch of properties. Do you want to sell me something? And he was like, oh yeah, here, take this one. It was like probably his biggest headache. And I cut my teeth on that single family rental. Uh, I'm actually really thankful. It was such a bad experience. I knew I didn't want to scale that experience. And I went super passive after that. That's when I got into note funds, ATM funds, life insurance policies. And then I discovered the world of syndications. And I, I, I call like syndications like the gateway drug. Once you get into it, like the whole world of uh, private securities kind of opens up to you. Um, and that's kind of how I got into mobile home parks uh, a couple of years back. Uh, I actually heard someone on a podcast that reached out. Uh, they were doing JVs for mobile home parks. And uh, this was an out-of-state park. Again, probably a really bad investment. Now looking back at it, you know, out-of-state, all the partners were out-of-state. Uh, really heavy vet turnaround. Uh, it was literally like the Met Park, uh, if you Googled it. And I just learned from being a part of the, the process. And from there, I kind of said, you know what, it might be a little bit better to not only do JVs, but invest in more experienced operators. And for my personal fund that I have, the income fund, which is a different story, but for my personal income fund, we invest in a fund operator that he vets the mobile home park operators. So I get exposure for my fund. Uh, via that fund. And it's kind of progressed from that JV model. Very cool. Wow. So that's a little bit different from, you know, other guests we've had on the show that are more, you know, directly investing. Maybe you can share a little bit more about that. So you have a, like a fund of funds, and then you're investing in like a fund of, of many different syndicators. Is that right? Yeah, so my fund, uh, if, if you go on SH Capital Group, is basically what I wanted to do is I have, you know, I, I didn't, when I pivoted my careers, I still had a sizable equity portfolio, and I never really got rid of that. But what I realized was that it was really difficult to get the yield that I was looking for from my equities. I tried every single strategy known to man. I did the, the yield, the utilities and the blue chip stocks and, and the close ended funds and the MLPs. And I, I never got the yield. I got yield for one or two years, one downturn, all the yield went away. So when I was structuring my income fund, I wanted like a perfect complement for someone that might still want a traditional portfolio, but is just looking for capital preservation yield. So what I did is I launched an income fund. It was basically the product I was looking for for 20 years. And one of the ways I get that higher yield and is by blending assets. So I have apartment buildings, but I also have mobile home parks because mobile home parks traditionally have higher yield than traditional apartment buildings. And I also have notes in it. So what it allows me to do is I, I created the fund to avoid the investment drag that you'd get in other deals. So for example, what, what investment drag is, is if you invest in, let's say an apartment building, or let's say mobile home park. In year one, there's a lot of closing costs and there's a lot of costs associated for implementing the business plan that flow through the PL. And what that usually does is it lowers the cash on cash you'll get from year one. Cash on cash is what you actually see. So sometimes investors get blinded by the preferred return being so high, but that's not what's actually going to be paid out. So that drag of that first year of you know getting 2%, 3%, 4%, I wanted to overcome that. And the way you overcome that is you have to blend it with assets that have higher cash on cash from day one, such as the ATM fund, such as mobile home parks, uh, and such as notes. Very interesting. Okay. So 
I'm curious about your first deal, the one that you said you, you bought as like a JV with someone you heard on a podcast. And maybe can you walk us through that and, and kind of uh, give us a little more detail, if you don't mind? No, absolutely. So it was a 52 lot park in Topeka, Kansas. The JV was small because it, it is a JV. So it, it required active involvement. So it didn't matter what you put into the deal. You had to be actively involved. And that active involvement usually ranged from at least getting on a call to maybe picking up a project or two. But there were there were three managing members. And then everybody else was kind of just like more or less an investor that had a slightly elevated role than your typical limited partnership. Um, it was definitely a unique experience. The The underwriting of the deal, because it was such a heavy value add, if it worked, it was going to be extremely successful. Uh, but there were just certain variables that were there that I probably today would never invest in that type of deal. Uh, and the first one is really being the operators were all out of state. And there was such property manager turnover. And I feel like that would never have been the case if they were in state. Uh, so it was, it was an interesting deal. We, uh, we, I was able to get, you know, usually on a lot of my syndications, sometimes I'll invest, you know, 50, hundred thousand, you walk away with two, 4% of the deal at most with a JV and it's a small enough JV, you could get a sizable chunk of equity. Uh, so I think I owned between me and my investment club, I owned about 20% of that deal. So there was definitely a, the risk reward was favorable, uh, but probably the individual specifics of that deal probably didn't, didn't line up too well now thinking about it in hindsight. Well, let's, let's, let's try to add value to the listeners and, and help them learn like some of the things you maybe would have done differently, you know? So tell me about those out-of-state operators. Was it just because they were out of state or did they have a track record of other mobile home parks that they had managed and turned around in the past? Or, you know, maybe tell us what you would have done differently. Sure. They actually did have a really good track record. Uh, they've done some successful deals in the, uh, in the Carolinas. And I think they've had a successful, actually, I think every single one of their parks, except for this one was actually, I would say highly successful. Uh, and I think it was just better markets. Um, you know, there's a difference between buying a park in Topeka, Kansas, where it's flat population growth. And then, of course, COVID did not help when you're dealing with a turnaround that requires uh, turnover of units. So if you're dealing with tenant turnover and you can't actually evict them, there is definitely a hindrance. It almost it kept feeling like they were just around the corner of turning the property and turning the property. And then they would have to start over with a new property manager. So I, I think that's my big advice is the market is especially important when you are dealing with out-of-state operators. They might have a track record in a specific market. And if that market is not as, I guess, warm or attractive as the markets that they're in, it's, their track record becomes a little misleading. Yeah. Yeah. So the operators you invested with, you said they had a track record mainly in the Carolinas or did, were they, you know, outside of the East Coast besides this new asset? Uh, they had some in Texas as well. Okay. So they had some on the coast and they were honestly, I, I have nothing but respect for them, even though the deal wasn't what I would label as a as a home run. I think I walked away with like a five percent annual return. It definitely wasn't like I didn't lose my money. Uh, the communication level was excellent. Uh, I saw that they were dealing with a lot of headaches uh, that I didn't have to deal with, which was very, really <laughs> nice. Like literally, they went through six property managers. Well, at the end, like I think the last straw 
was one of the first property managers that got fired as being a property manager. Uh, he got evicted from the property. And one of his like last goodbyes was that he was like flushing Cheeto bags that were not even opened. And he was flushing them right down the thing and like clogged up the whole sewer for the entire uh, thing. So it was just, it was a very low quality group of uh, tenants. Uh, and I think that also is thing, like if it was probably like a class A park that was maybe like 55 and over and highly stabilized, they probably would have done fine managing it. But ha- being such a heavy value add, I would like my piece of advice is the heavier the value add, the closer you want your operators to be there. Wow. And that's, uh, that's interesting because I would say, you know, a lot of operators, especially nowadays, are not in in the area where they're buying parks. Our parks are not where we live. I, I live in Orlando, uh, Orlando, Florida, and we buy parks all over, you know, the Midwest. And, you know, we do have someone move on site in the beginning, you know, to uh, take over ownership and set up our new systems. But, um, you know, having someone there, you know, that is competent, I think is important. And in some markets, it's easier than others. So I do think it's, it's heavily market specific. Um, very cool. Thanks for sharing that with us. Can you tell me a little bit about the fund that you invested in, the mobile home park fund that invests in other operators and why you think that's a good option for passive investors? Yeah, so they, um, I won't mention any names or anything because I'm not like soliciting for them or for my fund, whatever it is. Uh, they have a really good track record. They, um, I network with a lot of limited partners because I'm in a lot of different asset classes. I'm not just in uh, mobile home parks or self storages. I'm also in, uh, I'm actually my m- core competency is more or less apartment buildings, but I wanted that mobile home park exposure. And what I realized is that I couldn't be, I couldn't get, I couldn't be on 10 JVs to give my fund diversification into mobile home parks because just times wise, even though it was limited, it still would have required more time than I could. So I wanted something that I, my fund could be a limited partner on and so I was leaning on the expertise of that fund operator who only deals with mobile home parks. And I think they deal with self-storage. And the main thing was every time I talked to anybody in my network that's invested with them, it was just the greatest. They had nothing but great things to say. And I think at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is that reputation. And I think they were on their second or third fund by then. And they were highly successful with their first two funds. And it just their their values aligned really well with our 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 values. So it was a good fit. Tell me that. You said you have you know you have a network of passive investors. I know you you started your own accredited investor group. And you know, I think that's super valuable, you know, to be able to get referrals and you know, talk about operators and what they you know, how they performed and didn't perform, et cetera. You know, maybe you could share a little bit of light on that. Is there Facebook groups? Is there LinkedIn groups? You know, what, what do you think a passive investor should go, you know, seek out to try to find that network? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I, I'm like a firm believer, like if you're not willing to network when you're investing in private securities, you probably are gambling more than you should be because at the end of the day, a lot of these operators and me, including, right. So if someone asks me what kind of fund operator I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm a good operator, you know, you know, who says bad things about themselves. So a lot of times the operator world is, is kind of like a marketing shell game where, you know, everybody says they're the best operator, the, what you, where you get real unbiased information from is from other investors who invested in that deal. Uh, so I, 
the way I built up my network, and this took years, and it took, you know, a lot of calls. Uh, I'm a firm believer of quarterly calls on my network. Is I I started off on on LinkedIn, and you just add the words investor to your your actual group. A lot of people are scared to put that there because if it, it like oh if you're a software developer and you put investor, it kind of diminishes your value of a software developer. But if you're going to be a passive investor, you need to put that there. And what what ends up happening is then you start getting bombarded with more or less kind of solicitations and semi-spam. Like, oh, I see you're an investor. You might be interested in our deal. Or, hey, we're a mortgage broker. Let's let's touch base. Those conversations aren't really too beneficial. But what they do allow you to do is if you participate in enough of them when you're new, you start learning the language of commercial real estate. Commercial real estate has its own special group of languages. And the best part is if you learn the language of apartment buildings, that transfers over really well to self-storage and that can transfer really well into mobile home parks because the same terms like cap rates, NOI, you know, you got those nuances with mobile home parks. Like you need to know if it's park-owned homes or tenant-owned homes, but more or less the language is very transferable. So what I recommend is step one, add the fact that you're actually an investor. The more specific, the better. If you're a real estate investor or a tech startup investor, just put it there. Two, start taking the calls when you don't know the language. And once you start picking up the language, you could lower the frequency of those calls because you're going to realize there's really no value of you speaking to a mortgage broker when you're first starting out or whatever the case is. And then the next thing, once you have that in place and you actually know the language, now you should go to like conferences, RIAs, and you want to go to conferences where the speakers are the people that you would be interested in investing with. So, for example, if you're interested in investing in mobile home parks, you know, you should be going to the mobile home park conference where there's reputable mobile home park operators as the presenters. You don't want to go to a wholesaling conference or a flipper conference. You want to go specifically what you're trying to learn it. And once you're there, you want to actually network with a few people. You don't need many. You need like five or six quality people. And then the, and the reason why you can't skip and go directly to that step is because if you go to a conference or a RIA and you don't know the language, you're going to come off as you're asking for help versus you're trying to actually network with peers. So learning that language is super, super critical. So once you actually get to the conferences, network with a few people, and then this is the key. After the, net, the event, don't just say, hey, let's stay in touch. Say like, hey, we're in December. How is January 5th? Let's throw something in the calendar. If it doesn't work, when it gets closer to the calendar, we'll figure it out. And then get on a quarterly call. And now during those calls, that's when you're going to really develop your networking skills. Hey, who are you investing in? What areas? And you're going to pick up so many different things because as a single investor, you could only do so much. Once you have a network of five and then that network of five becomes 25 because those five will introduce you to another five, it's, it becomes so powerful. You'll figure out who the best operators are. And then it comes to a point where you're not the one that's going out searching for operators you're just going to be hearing the same names over and over, the ones that are killing it, that are crushing it. You're going to hear those names and you're going to, re you're going to know who to reach out for and everything else is going to be more or less a waste of time. Wow, that, that was a lot of good information right there. I want to go back. You said something about you know, going to these conferences and just trying to find five or six people, you know, five or six quality investors, and then... Uh, one thing you said that really struck a chord with me because 
I've been building up a sales team of cold callers overseas. And when they start cold calling mobile home park owners, if they don't know the terminology, the mobile home park owners just disqualify them right away and just shut down and say, no, we're not going to sell to you. Thanks anyways for calling. And they hang up. So you got, they have to know the terminology. They have to know the park owned home, uh, tenant owned home, the utilities setups. They have to know what questions to ask. So they sound like they know they're, what, what they're talking about. So I, I love your way of doing that. Before you go to a conference, you know, study these things, get on some phone calls and, and understand that language. That's, that's a really good tip. And then I also like how you, how do you find operators? That was going to be one of my questions, you know, speakers at, at asset class specific conferences. That was great. Let me ask you about the splits. I know you come from like the multifamily apartment, you know, space where, you know, splits for GPs and LPs are a, a whole lot different than the way they are in the mobile home park space. Maybe you can share some light on that and how you got comfortable with the, you know, the new mobile home park splits. So, you know, traditionally the apartment building world is like a 70-30, but with the JV that I did, I'm not 100% sure of the other deals because the fund that I'm in actually has a very similar uh, split to what I would see in the apartment building world. But I remember on the JV deal, it was a 60-40 split. And the reason why it was so much higher was because it was a huge value add split. And the main thing is the cost of the park was actually pretty small. So it was, there really wasn't much equity there in the first place. So I was completely okay with that because I saw the work that was being done on it. So I thought it was, it was worth the 40%. And if the deal was successful, the, the portion of equity that I still maintained would have, you know, made up for, for the higher than usual equity that we would give up. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I still think 60, 40 is, you know, is, is a good, good for the, for the LP. I think that's still a, a reasonable split. You know, I, I know a lot of funds are doing like a 50, 50 right now with mobile home parks uh, because of just that, because it's a lot more work because there's not just a third party property management company you can hire and just put them in charge. You know, I, there's, there's a lot of stories on this podcast and others about bad third-party property managers in the mobile home park space. So it, it, for operators that, you know, they have to create their own property management company, it's a lot of, it's a lot more work, you know, so it's just a little bit different from multifamily. Uh, let's talk about inflation, you know, and where the economy is at right now. And, you know, obviously a lot of people talk about real estate being a hedge for that. You know, what do you think about, you know, the direction of where the economy is going and, uh, you know, do you feel safe uh, investing in, you know, mobile home parks and, and other, the other asset classes you're in? So I would say two things to that. So one, I think the potential to get long-term debt right now is probably the best tool you can have to fight inflation. I know we are currently general partnering on, on an apartment building and we're looking at 10 years at 3.3%. You know, if the inflation rate stays at five to 6%, you know, in theory, your, your apartment building is getting cheaper by two to three percent every single year, and that's huge. And then, in it's on top of that, we could still pass on the rent cost. So it's I know it's similar in mobile home park, but I know mobile home park tends to be more mom and pop sellers. So as long as you're structuring it that the right way, I would be a little bit weary of getting into investments right now where it's like a bridge debt, where you know you're penciling out a sure number of what the interest rate is going to be in, in 18 to 24 months, because it's a little like I, I've never seen so much uncertainty 
that I have right now in terms of my conversations with real estate investors. So from a passive investor perspective, just whatever deal that you're thinking of investing in, look at that debt. The debt has never been more important than it is today. That's going to be, you know, in three years, four years, you're going to look back at it. You are not going to regret, you know, investing in the right. Don't even like, I would say, don't even look at the deal, look at the debt. And then if the debt doesn't match your, you know, what you think is going to be happening in the inflation, just, you know, there will be a deal that will match it. That's great advice. Wow. Yeah. Look at the debt. I mean, what do you, what do you think for interest rates? You know, say, what do you think they're going to be in five years? So I was sure that they were going up and then, you know, now you have that whole new wave, you have the Omicron and I'm, I, since I invest in stocks, I remember the early days of COVID and how the market reacted. And it's eerily similar to that. The first couple of days, the way it, it, it kind of jumps here and there, and then all of a sudden the jumps get more aggressive. Uh, so it feels very similar. And the way that the news is portraying, oh, a confirmed case and how much how much emphasis it's given to that one confirmed case that I'm not so sure. Like I, I was sure that, you know, we were, it, it seemed, you know, the Fed just announced that they were going to stop buying the, the, the they were going to ease their the QE and everything like that. And then all of a sudden this variant came up and I don't think anybody has a crystal ball of where the rates are going to be in five years, because are we going to get a new type of variant that, you know, that, scientists come and raise the alarm every six to nine months and with a potential lockdown like you know how could the fed raise if in two months we're going to be in a lockdown yeah that's a really good point yeah who knows how many variants are going to come out of this let me ask you this what are the most important things passive investors need to look out for when investing into mobile home parks i would definitely say the operator and what is the collective body of knowledge of your network saying about that operator? The passive investment world is very small. You know, within the six degrees, if I talk to six different real estate investors, out of those six investors, we probably have invested with like 80% of operators out there. So if you build out your network and as long as you have, hey, how is the reporting? How is this? How is that? Just, you know, treat it like, I don't know, like I would say like a job, treat it as, hey, because once you watch, I always say that being passive is you have to be actively passive to the point where you wire the money. Because once you wire that money, you are 100% passive. But to the point where until the point that you are wiring that money, you should be doing your homework. You should be doing at the as the due diligence. You should be asking questions. You should be, you know, how is the the operator responding to you? You know, uh, I find that operators respond to you the quickest before you send the money in. But you know, if you do the second layer of of questionnaires, like I remember, so many operators I've I've removed from my list because I would look at their deck. I would literally respond with like ten questions. Hey, I've noticed this. I noticed that. I noticed that. And then it goes crickets because some operators do not want that type of investor. And I'm okay with that. I'm just don't want to be partnering with that type of operator. So notice the communication. It's really subtle. You know, are they responding to you in a timely manner? Are they being courteous to you? Do they treat your $50,000 with respect? Because some operators don't, because they've moved on to the point where unless you're writing, you're writing them, you know, a $500,000 check, you're not really worth their time. So how are they treating the $50,000 investor? All of these things 
are like, they're more or less judgment calls and you need to be able to talk to multiple operators and get that, get that sense. But the main thing is, you know, lean on your network that they'll never, if you've invested your time in that network, that network will steer you the right way. What's your number one question to ask operators that is, that you feel is like the most telling of, of if they're going to be a good operator or not? Oh, that's a good question. You know, I think the cliche one is tell tell me about your worst performing deal, but tell you the truth. I like to have a full conversation and I, sometimes I don't ask that question at all. And then sometimes I'll, I like, I'll, I'll just get a sense my career with the government I've interviewed. Like I like figure that not even I like about 10,000 people. So within, within a, a 10, 15 minute conversation, I usually have either my red flags are up or they're not. And if they are, then it, one question is not going to change anything. It's just, you know, it's just general sense. Like don't safeguard your money, but be open to investing. That's what I'll, I'll say. Sure. Oh, that's a great, great response. Uh, let me ask you this. What's your, what does the perfect mobile home park look like in your eyes and why? I would say tenant uh, majority tenant owned homes, public, local operator, and you know the numbers still work. That's yeah. it. Short and sweet. I like it. Maybe tell us a little bit about SIH Capital Group. You know, what's your value proposition? What what makes you guys different? Yeah, so we are our fund is income focused, so it's income focused and capital preservation. We pay seven percent from day one only to accredited investors, so there is no back end split. That's part of the simplicity of it, uh, and we also have very low minimums of only ten thousand dollars. So it's kind of like a REIT that's not publicly traded. We have exposure right now to about ninety three properties. It's going to be like ninety six properties by the end of the month. So it's mm. a pretty diversified pool of investments that are paying, you know, that full seven percent from day one. Well, yeah, that's that's wonderful. Uh, how can our listeners get a hold of you if they'd like to do so, Dennis? So if you go to my website, sihcapitalgroup.com, I wrote a book on alternative investments, including mobile home work. There's a chapter on mobile home parks. Uh, so my book is structured in all these different alternative investments that real estate investors tend to come across. So you'll find out about apartment building, self-storage, mobile home parks, ATM funds, life insurance policies. And what I did is I wanted to create a book where it gives a high level uh, introduction to the asset class, and then it gets into Q&As with two expert operators in that space. And it's the same Q&As for the mobile home park guys as the self-storage guys. So you could kind of see how the different investors, different operators are answering the exact same question. So the book is the Alternative Investment Almanac, Expert Insights on Building Personal Wealth in Non-Traditional Ways. That can be found on Amazon. And my website is SIH Capital Group. If you go on my website, there's two abridged versions of my book. There's abridged versions of the content, and then there's a abridged version of the Q&A. Uh, if you sign up to my email list, you can kind of get both. And th that's really the best way to reach out to me. Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll make sure to, to check out that book. That sounds like a good one. That's it for today, folks. Dennis, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Great being here. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Hey, are you getting value out of this show? If so, would you mind please going over to iTunes and leaving the show a quick five-star review? I have a goal of hitting over 100 five-star reviews by the end of 2021, and it would mean the absolute world to me if you could help contribute to that. 
thanks ahead of time for making my day with your five-star review of the show.